Thank you all for joining us and welcome to another episode of the Wicked Aloha podcast. Today's guest is Ben Freeberg. Ben, as many know, is the founder of the Chattajack 31, a 31 mile paddling race down the Tennessee River Gorge. The race has been going since 2012, and this is the ninth running of it this coming October. It's one of the most well-organized events I've ever been to, racing or otherwise, despite selling out at nearly 650 competitors every year. What many may not know is that Ben himself is quite the stout paddler. His list of accomplishments in the paddling world and beyond are often not talked about because Ben is one of the most humble guys around. We were fortunate to be able to steal some of Ben's time and talk paddling with him for a bit. His stories are inspiring, to say the least. Hopefully, you will all enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Please enjoy. Welcome to the Wicked Aloha podcast. Thanks. All its glory. Yeah. So, tell us about Chattajack. 2020 it's happening it is happening um we uh we were definitely surprised at how quickly it sold out um just didn't it's kind of an unusual year obviously and so um uh, i i kind of thought it would take i don't know i didn't even know if it would sell out but i was like even if it doesn't who cares like even if it's just like a small group a core group this year it's going to be uh awesome in its own way you know because i was like geez maybe if there's only 200 people that will come i'll get to throw my own board in the water and race again you know um I i think people are just sick of being inside and there's so many people who are looking to to compete no matter what yeah what they compete in they're they're just looking to to compete because everything's canceled so uh, I, I don't think it was as surprising to me to see that it sold out as quick as it did. But um, is that the record? Yeah, it's kind of been. It's actually the trajectory is kind of like almost consistent as well. Like if you go back x number of years, it sold out in like maybe two weeks, and then it went to like maybe like one week, and then it went to like twenty four hours, then it went to 12 hours and then it went to six hours and then it went to basically one hour. So it's kind of crazy. And that's always like right around 650 ish racers. Um, so, um, it's kind of get just cutting in half, I guess, almost each year, but, but so maybe, maybe it's becoming a little bit of a bucket list check for some folks. And then there, you got some people that want to come and get a belt buckle some people that just want to come and see their friends um and uh but speaking of seeing friends i don't know if you guys remember this but the very first time i met you two guys you it was at in uh in 2012 at the uh, bop we were at the werner party and uh danny mongno hosted that night oh yeah the taco night i still got the cup yeah I still have the cup too. I use it every night when I give Harrison his bath. I use that cup to uh, pour water over his head. <laughs> They're awesome. He can't, he can't break it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can bite it and chew on it and everything. But uh, yeah, so that was the first I time talking, I met. I remember talking to you that, that year. And uh, then I think it was the next 
it was right after that that was the first Chattajack, right? Yeah, right. Because uh, probably two months later, something yeah. like that, or a month or two later, um, we had the first Chattajack. Will, you came, raced uh, Unlimited and crushed it. Um, and then um, I had just, I think I had just done the Yukon 20, the 24 hour distance paddle. So that was kind of how three of us started talking at that party. Yeah. That's why you were, you were at the BOP that year. Yeah, that's right. And um, cause you were up for like, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I remember parts of that party still. Was it the party that was, was it before? Or was it the party after? That the was party the party before. Yeah. Yeah. The party after was pretty rowdy. It was, uh, it was, there was a lot going on there. There was cool. far fewer people, but there was a lot more drinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's when, um, Danny and I forget the president's name of, uh, Werner and the head marketing guy at Werner. We're taking Bob to task for not listening to us about his board shapes. After the uh, our, our fabulous performance in the unlimited race or the distance race where I think I remember getting passed by this girl on a surf shape after I'd fallen like 47 times and I was like screaming to myself. <laughs> it was so bad. I was on a really narrow board that race that, that year and I fell off so yeah. many times. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but um, good stuff. That, that brings up a, a good uh, a good topic. We wanted to talk to you about that Yukon experience because uh, now all three of us have been up to the Yukon and yeah. been on that river. What was what was that twenty four hour paddle like in terms of uh, preparation and getting there and logistics? And then just kind of walk us through uh, that experience a little bit. Um, so I, um, cause I think this is, this is something that a lot of people don't know about you because you're a pretty sure. guy. You don't, you don't really talk about your accolades that much. Um, so talk, talk to us about the Yukon uh, 24 hour battle. I, um, there's a, a stretch of water that I've paddled a lot since I was a little kid here in my hometown going from the Hiawassee river to, to Chattanooga. And, um, I used to do it over the course of three days, um, in like traditional canoes, two people per canoe. And even when I was a, a counselor at this camp, Camp Coe, uh, would, I did that trip during college. A couple of times I got in a sea kayak. And then, um, when I got into standup, I was into whitewater. That was the only thing that I, that interested me about a standup paddleboard. I, I bought a standup paddleboard and I took it straight to, um, the Ocoee river. And then, um, I, with one of my friends, we just decided to kind of do a, a weird thing one weekend where we were just like, Hey, let's do that stretch from the Hiawassee to, uh, back to Chattanooga. And it was like frigid cold. And we we're just like, let's just, I mean, we set out like really late at night and we we're just like wondering, I wonder if we, what it'll be like if we just keep paddling. And I was on a bark expedition. He was on like a, 10-6 recreational board, zero oh. stuff experience whatsoever. And uh, I even took a tent fly with me just to kind of do some, like use it as a sail for like downwinders whenever the, the wind was in the right direction. And, you know, it was just like, we're just kind of figuring it out. And 
had no, no clue about like what was going on with like races and displacement halls and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we had been paddling class five whitewater for 20 years. So we had a lot of water experience, but not from like flat water racing or, or paddling or anything like that. But anyway, we did that stretch, did it in right at 24 hours. And then one of my buddies here in Chattanooga who races, races surf skis and stuff, he was like, Hey, you did that in 24 hours. So you just kind of basically proved that you can paddle for 24 hours. He's like, you should go up to the Yukon river. That's where all the kayakers go that do like crazy 24 hour distance intervals. Like that's the place. If you're going to like basically set any type of record for distance in 24 hours, that's the place where you're going to have no dams and like the most amount of current and also the least amount of significant rapids where you can paddle something that's like designed to go really, really fast. Um, in recent years, for the, for the longest time, the, the records for kayaking stood uh, on, it was set by Andy Cora and then it, uh, then it was set beat uh, by uh, the young guy up there in like hood river area. I, I can't remember his name. He paddled a surf ski and he did, he did over 300 miles in 24 hours on a surf ski. Holy shit. But then uh, some young guys beat that record and they paddled a stretch of water that I, um, that I can't remember. And these, the guys that did it, they, there was a team and it was, I mean, they ran some early huge uh, rapids and at crazy flood stage. I mean, like, and, but the, the, all the stars aligned and they actually set the record for kayak distance in 24 hours nonstop. Um, I, I don't know. They, maybe they did 320 miles or something like that. But anyway, those guys told me they were like the Yukon river is where you need to go. If you're going to like basically set that record. And so then I just kind of started doing the research to figure out like, okay, this would be a supported mission. Um, so I tried to find an outfitter up there that would put a boat next to me so that basically I would be following the same rules and same regulations that open water swimmers do where basically the boat follows right beside you. If you want to call it quit, you know, for whatever reason you can get out, but they're also, they're going to help you. They're going to provide you with food or garments, whatever you want to change. You can just keep hammering, but you know, uh, the, the, the clock starts as soon as you hit start, you go. And, um, so I spent, um, I don't know, maybe like eight months kind of just kind of wrapping my mind around that. I'd never really done anything like endurance related, but I had definitely done a lot of things suffering related. You know, we've all like you guys, you play up in frigid cold water up in near Boston. I've been playing in cold water, you know, here in Chattanooga. Cause like when our, the kayaking season here is when it's really cold that when it's, you know, 30 or 40 degrees outside, that's when the creeks are running. So I knew that I was just like, and, and man, there've been lots of times too that, you know, you're six, six miles from your car and you got lots of big rapids to go to get home and it's 30 degrees outside and your vision is blurred and everything like that, but you can just persevere. You can push through it. So I guess having those experiences, you know, you're just like, uh, there's nothing that's going to kill me on flat water. You know, I'll just kind of, I can hammer for 24 hours, whatever. So that was basically kind of what led me into it. And then, um, yeah, I didn't really know. I basically set the goal. My goal was like, I want to go over 200 miles in a day. Um, I bought, actually bought Danny Ching's unlimited. It was, the board was amazing. Um, and, uh, 
got that shipped up there and flew up there. And so then I, um, since you guys know the Yukon River really well, um, I uh, had to oh, where load it up uh, in the 30 mile section just after Lake Labarge. Uh, we we motored down probably um, we motored down probably five miles into the 30 mile section, and I just kind of chilled for a little bit. And then um, when everything was ready and it was a go, it was like, all right, let's do it, let's start. And then we started, and um, I did. 238 miles in 24 hours. And um, so I was just a fraction under a 10 mile an hour moving average uh, for that paddle. And, was, uh, it in, was it in July or something? I guess the only time without ice and 24 hour sunlight is July or August, right? Yeah. I, it's kind of slipped in my memory a little bit about what that date was. Um, I just remember the year it was 2012 and I, yeah, definitely the summer. I, it was really close to, uh, the river quest. Cause I remember some of those teams were up there training and I think I might've taken off, like I might've taken off like a day ahead of them because I think I, I kind of thought I was, I was expecting to see some of those guys out there, but I, I never did. And, um, but, um, anyway, yeah. So we, you know, I put in right through the 30 mile section, paddled 238 miles, went through the five fingers rapid and went down somewhere between there and, uh, uh, Dawson. And I, I think I was still like, a hundred miles up above Dawson or something like that when it was over. And then we just, the 24 hours was up, loaded the gear into, uh, the, uh, on the boat and, um, motored down to Dawson, slept, slept there for the night. And then the next day drove back to Whitehorse. Did you have any particular training program leading up to that? No, I was like, I had no experience, um, I mean, I, I will say I was going out, one of my buddies, uh, Jack McAfee, he was a really, really good triathlete. He actually is like won some Ironman and like legitimate Ironman, full Ironman events and stuff like that. He kind of taught me about heart rate. And so I, I bought a heart rate monitor and I kind of like learned a little bit about my zones and I knew like that, um, kind of knew I was just like, I wonder, hopefully I, I need, I need to find something that I could maintain. So I did go out and I would do a lot of training runs where I would paddle for like four hours and I would try to maintain like a zone three heart rate or something like that. Cause I knew at the end of the day, more than anything, just paddling for that type of a interval, I just didn't want, like, I didn't want to have any problems coming up with my wrists or shoulders or uh, elbows or anything like that. That was the, the name of the game. And then be like really efficient with feedings Um and, um, no, it wasn't a, the only time I really hammered was there were a couple of times when the headwinds got really gnarly over a stretch of maybe 30 miles or something like that. And I, I definitely would, you know, I remember choking up on the paddle and just kind of grinding it out. Cause I knew that at some point in time over the course of 24 hours, those winds would change or something, or they would go away cause we're covering so much distance. That was a hard thing too, is like, when you're covering 238 miles over the course of 24 hours, who knows what kind of weather you're going to see. It could be great and then bad and great and bad. Yeah. Um, you're, you're going a, a lot of different over a lot of different parts of the Yukon territory. And even up there, if it's windy in your face, you could still be going eight or nine or nine hours. So. Yeah. And then, 
I'd love to actually go back there. You guys, you since you know the Yukon River, you could uh, probably appreciate this. This is like sort of like a vision quest dream of mine. I would love to go back there with a real high performance, maybe even like a 14. So that way it's it's even for everybody. You know, everybody can relate to piling a 14 instead of like a, an unlimited or whatever. And, but basically just take a bivy and take bare minimum food. And then so – Paddle across Lake LaBarge yourself, right? And um, then when you get to the 30-mile section, bivy up. And I say bivy because, like, you're basically – what the purpose is is self-support 24-hour distance record. So what's that? what that means is you're going to have to paddle to the 30-mile section, get there, sleep for a day or two. That way you're just, like, in peak, like, readiness to go all out, go super minimal with your – uh, garments, camping gear, and food, chill for a couple days. And then when the weather looks good and you're ready to hit, go. And then so imagine, you know, you're, you go 24 hours and you're, you know, you're going for a 24-hour distance record. And then when you're done, that's the most beautiful part of it. Uh, you're done. You're going to be, let's say, 150 miles up above uh, Dawson. So you were in the middle of freaking nowhere. You're exhausted. And, but yeah, you just like did something like really spiritual, you know, and you're going to bivy up again and you're going to sleep for like, I don't know, 15 hours. And then you're just going to slowly make your way to Dawson. I mean, like to me, that's just like a really, I think that would be a very pure and beautiful experience. It's something that I, I would really like to go back and do. So that way you can, you know, for whatever, it's not like you're wanting to like set world records or anything like that, but you're wanting to experience something. And each of those things is a unique experience because the, variables are different so um i don't know bivvies are cool i don't know i just dig it just being very light and... yeah so then go ahead well so you then then it was uh what 2014 you and kim were the first people to stand up paddle the 1000 race right yeah uh 20 2012 was the Yukon, 2013 was Cuba, and 2014 was back to um, the Yukon. Yeah, we'll come back to Cuba, but so um, how was doing that on inflatables, man? Uh, I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. It was really low stress. I didn't, didn't really know what to expect. And so, um, you know, I'd read a lot about like the, the Yukon flats and, had read a lot about different sections, but I was really, I was kind of spooked about having um, a composite board with a fin box and being out there and then like, you know, trying to traverse, you know, um, ferry across the river and hitting something sideways. I mean, you know, you're, that river is moving a lot of times, some in a lot of places, five miles an hour downstream. And if you're cruising because you're wanting to go to a better place to camp for the night and you jack a rock, sideways and you're moving that's you're moving five miles an hour downstream and that's not good if you break a fin so then i was just like so there was like a little bit of that and um i was also i, I was really conservative on the amount of gear that uh we carried because i just read stories of people having to like basically kind of get people camping for a long time in one location if the weather got bad. And um, so 
um, I'm a pretty conservative calculated person in general. And so because of that, I took a lot of, I, like I took a four season temp, for example. Um, and um, so, you know, if we went back and did it over again, I may be a, a little bit um, less conservative about some of those things, but yeah, we, we took inflatables like, cause I, I paddled uh, a tandem inflatable. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I had like, a lot of uh, space there on my yep. board. And logistically, it was probably a hell of a lot cheaper to ship inflatables than a rigid board up there. I remember getting a quote to ship a board up there, and it was like 3500 bucks from Boston to Whitehorse. I was like, what? Yeah, yeah. yeah crazy. Inflatable, um, you just put on your back. And <laughs> yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think we took, we took kind of a conservative approach as far as gear went. Uh, but in the end, we were like, we probably only had about another day worth of food before we finished. Yeah. We, didn't, we didn't have that much food left when we finished. Uh, so it was good that we actually finished what we did. But as far as other gear goes, I mean, we had a, it was, I think it was a three and a half season tent. Like it was, it wasn't a full four season tent, but it wasn't like a summer tent. It, yeah. was, it was, it was more heavy duty and. Like I, I, I went with the zero degree bag or the negative 15 bag or whatever they told us to bring. I'm really glad I did because, man, there were some nights that even though we were you know, working all day and hot and the temperature during the day got hot, at night it gets cold even though the sun barely yeah. goes down. I mean, I was, still, I was still cold. I was still in my bag, fully in my bag and happy about it. Yeah. The one thing, though, if we if we did run out of food, we could have had a knife and axe sale on the side of the river and probably made a couple grand with all the knives and fucking hardware we brought. We brought like seventeen knives and like three hatchets and a machete. It was sweet. Yeah. <laughs> we were a little we were a little overboard on the on the weaponry, but everything else was pretty pretty dialed. Did you guys see? Did you guys see any brown bear out there? Just one. Somewhere we were like, uh, just as you're coming out of the mountains into the tundra, when you get into that real willowy area there, like uh, just past Dawson a day, maybe. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. And it was just on the bank first thing in the morning. It's probably like 6 a.m. And the thing, we were playing some reggae music and this thing just saw us and was like, Pew! off into the off into the bush. It didn't want anything to do with us. It must have been a bad song or something. So, like, that's kind of a cool part of the river because like right after Dawson one of the things that I kind of thought about almost like from a philosophical historical perspective is is this so you know you know the history of the Klondike gold rush and all these guys that like sacrificed everything in order to get to you know to go like stake their claim and then like let's say that they made it as far as Dawson but a lot of the times they get to Dawson and it's not what they had hoped for. You know, there's too many people there. There's no gold or whatever. And like, you know, maybe people weren't as friendly there as what they had hoped uh, for. So imagine you're that person and you get there and you're just like, dadgummit, dude, there's no trees here. Like everything's been cut down. Like uh, you've probably seen the pictures of it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, there was like no fuel for, for campfires and stuff. And I was like, I wonder how many guys were basically like, I'm going to die if I stay here. So therefore I need to get back in the river in hopes of going downstream and in hopes of like surviving, but yet you're just going further into a Venus flytrap. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you're just going into oblivion. Yeah, you know, because there's so many people that died um, trying to go <laughs> and you know, straight get their make their millions. But I love like anytime like um, there's a movie about the Klondike Gold Rush. Uh, man, I, I watch every single movie or um, series or um, just because I, I love to see – I mean, it's cool how Hollywood tries to depict that. And I think there's been quite a few that do a good job of kind of showing how hard life would have been for those people, how much yeah. suffering they do and how creative people would get. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, I, I just remember when we, when, we, when we paddled past Dawson uh, – it got really lonely and cold and got real. Cause it was just like, wow, man, this is like, okay. Yeah. Cause you get, you get to Dawson. You're like, Oh wow, man, this is great. I, I'm so excited to be here in Dawson. Yeah. You know? And then, um, I, that happened another time. One time I was like hiking up in the, the Arctic and, uh, above the Arctic circle in Sweden. And I was trying for days to get to this place where there was a village and, and I got there and I was, it was like mentally, it was like so important for me to get there. And once I finally got there, Nobody was there. And I was like, oh. dude, like I wanted, I just needed to see some people. And there was just like a band, there was like abandoned huts and stuff. And cause like the, the lops up there are, they're nomadic, you know? And so, um, so what, anyway, the, what, were you, what were you doing up there? Just cruising? I went, I went to school there, um, for a year. And, uh, so I, uh, the university of Lilio, which is like basically at the Arctic circle. And I would go like up in, to like Sarek and Kivikyok and Yokmok to just track, um, to, yeah, to track. Was that, was that a dinosaur or a bro dozer that just drove by? Uh, yeah, it, sounded a like, it sounded like a T-Rex leaning in the window. like. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and then, well, probably I don't think a lot of people know this, but you also were the first person to paddle from, uh, Cuba to Key West, right? On a, on, on a yeah. paddleboard. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people have paddled that stretch in uh, like probably homemade crafts and stuff like that, you know, going for freedom, you know? Yeah. Uh, That's another one of those like gold rush things, right? When somebody's so desperate that they get in a freaking inner tube with a gallon of water and hope they hit Florida, man, over 90 miles or however far, 100 miles of open water. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, when I was living in Key West, there was a guy who showed up um, in Dry Tortugas, I think, which is just south of Key West, where the National Park is. Uh, he showed up on a windsurfer. Okay. What? Like, as a refugee. Right, yeah, yeah. That, that was his escape. He, yeah. he, got, he got hold of a windsurfer and got to America. Cool. <laughs> And how long how long did that take you to do that? Twenty-eight hours and some I don't even I really don't even remember. I was chafing so bad I just wanted to go to bed uh or <laughs> rinse off with some fresh water. Did you, you you had a couple attempts at that during that trip, correct? Is that right? Did you start and then turn back and then wait a day and then start again? No, we uh like when we got there at first the everybody was basically saying like uh you need to go now you need to start there was a um we were we got kind of rushed um because there was a hurricane it was hurricane dorian and um it was tricky to get permission and then 
dates got bumped back and then um, eventually it worked out to where we could go. And then we got to Key West and we were going to like take our time a little bit more and spend a little time in Key West before we made our way to Cuba. But then we saw that storm and it was like, we need to leave, like jump on the boat and sail to Cuba as quickly as we can. So we did that. And then while we were heading over there, um, the captain of the sailboat, I mean, he was like communicating with some oceanographers and weather experts. And some of those people there just like, um, you probably basically need to touch and go. And um, we, I, you know, I was like standing there on the shore and we had kind of just, we'd landed there and I was just like staring off the shore with, you know, my board and I, I didn't have my board on me, but I, I walked out by myself and I was sitting there on the beach and I, uh, the winds were just so wrong, such a bad headwind. And, uh, but you know, at the same time, I don't typically like to, rock the boat too much like if i just i maybe i should stand up for myself a little bit more than i do but um kim my wife at the time she was the one who basically kind of gave me the guts to stand up to a lot of people who were a little uh who were a part of that basically just say now is not because they were basically saying if you don't go now you're not going to get a chance to go at all and so we basically were just like if we go now, it's going to be failure. And so let's wait this out in hopes of a chance to even get to go at all. Like, even if we, if that would be smarter to do that, you know? And so we ended up waiting for like four days and the hurricane was out there just spinning around. And then, uh, finally we kind of saw a really small window of an opportunity and, uh, it was still even a little bit of a, questionable window but it was like that's you know we can't sit here for another week or something like that you know we've got the sailboat chartered and people have to get back to their lives and everything and so uh we picked a day um i was telling patrick about this uh, in, in Wrightsville beach but we picked we picked a day we went to the marina and um i went there and met with uh the, the uh, commodore of the uh, marina and he was just like hey all right come to my office and we were like kind of chatting and he said okay we're gonna go downstairs i was gonna start that night i was gonna start the paddle that night but i just wanted to get there and get set up get my stomach in a good place maybe rest get my feet my body everything just kind of stretched out get nutrition kind of organized and uh but so we got to the marina at noon going to his office and he was like, okay, we're going to go downstairs and there's going to be some people with some questions, but he's like, just make sure there's nothing political, no political agendas. And I was like, absolutely not. Um, because it's Cuba, you know, it's a country that we, you know, the U S has sanctions with. And so they just want to make sure that I'm not going to go on air and say, you know, anything political. And so when we, we go downstairs, there's uh, a big press conference set up and, um, so I answered some of these questions. And then as soon as that was over though, everybody went away and they're like, okay, here you go. Here's your board. And I was like, dang, man, like we're starting like nine hours earlier than what I was hoping. Um, which means like we got like a nine hour interval of like crappy headwinds. But then at the end of the day, I was like, you know, we met people here on this trip that were encouraging us and cheering us on saying like my brother or my uncle died trying to do the crossing trying to get to freedom what you guys are doing and i'm going to be watching you and it, man it, 
we're, we're praying for you and we're thinking of you. And this like means so much to us on a personal level. So it was kind of like, this is like, this carries a lot more weight than your, my, anybody's agenda for trying to like uh, be hours faster. Let's, let's kind of put that, you know, cause they were, there was people that were like out on the shores, like watching us cause they had heard whatever that were there. And these people are saying goodbye. There was like boats that were following us out with like cameras and stuff because um, we're a lot of those people, man, they don't have, um, they don't have the freedoms that we do and they know that we're so close, but yet they're far from freedom. So it meant it was a bigger, it was more important for us to take a not so great time with the weather to, to head out. But so we did it and just kind of pushed through the headwinds. They eventually died that night, I think um, sometime. And then, we just paddled through the night and then the next day it was chill, easy, mild conditions, just hot. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've, I haven't paddled that stretch of water before, but I have gone, um, have been on a boat at stretch of water and it can be absolutely gnarly. There's different, so many currents like you have, you have currents coming from the east and then currents coming up from the southwest from the Yucatan and everything kind of comes together and it can be just a big washing machine. Um, so not an easy place to paddle at all. Um, what was, what was it like trying to get permission to even like get to Cuba? What was um, that process like? You basically just have to get two permissions. One is from the Department of Treasury. One is from the Department of Commerce. And um, there's, you know, there's a lot of people that request, like there's U.S. citizens that request to go to Cuba uh, for athletic reasons. So when you um, reach out to those uh, agencies, they're going to give you uh, some paperwork. And so you just start filling that stuff out and then, but prepare for it to take a long time. And, um, so that's kind of it, but I, I, yeah, just got a random phone call one Friday. It was like Friday at five or six o'clock and some guy from the department of treasury. And it, it almost sounded like when you get a, uh, a robo call and this guy was like, hi, this is agent. So-and-so with the U S department of treasury. And I was calling you in regards to, Cuba and just wanted to let you know that we've processed that application and you know you've been granted approval and I I'm out my my jaw like dropped I was just like wow man that's that's pretty awesome so anyway um what what were you using as far as nutrition goes for uh for that <laughs> so because of that 12 out well because I had to start way early I didn't have time to get anything set up for that. Uh, I was going to get to the Marina and then like probably even like run out and do, do some errands. So I had zero nutrition for that. Um, so Kim was actually like smashing apples and fruit and peanut butter and just like doing all sorts of stuff like that. And, you know, we kind of knew like obviously doing a, a long distance interval like that earlier in the game, my stomach's going to be able to digest things a little bit more solid. Whereas later in the game, I'm going to be switching over to uh, more sugars and things like that. But um, so, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't have uh, anything set up uh, 
So, yeah. How, how did how did uh, your nutrition plan evolve from uh, 2012 when you're in the Yukon to the, the Cuba passage to your return to the Yukon? So did did it stay the same or did make adjustments throughout? Because each time you learn something like, oh man, this was a bad choice and I need to do something about that. Or like how, how did, how did things progress or did they just stay the same? I, I think they still take, they still, they stayed somewhat the same. Like my greatest weakness in anything sport related is my stomach. Um, and my digestive tract. Um, it always has been my biggest weakness. And, um, and then, Still to this day, like if I do a sprint race, like um, an hour long, I'll go all out. I'll have a heart rate of 180 beats per minute for an hour, and then I'll have like a migraine headache for the rest of the day, no matter how much water, no matter how much sugar, no matter no matter how much salt I consume. And so I'm always, you know, trying to solve that that puzzle for myself. I mean, today I went to the gym, and you know, I ate super light breakfast because I just wanted to be like have nothing in my stomach I'm I'm caught lately I'm I don't know last six months or so I'm just kind of exploring eating less and less um so especially in the mornings um it's really popular right now a lot of people are getting onto that myself included yeah because and it's not because I'm just like oh, I want to try something new I'm just tired of um um, yeah, I'm just tired of like dealing with stomach issues and, you know, but every once in a while there's some, the stars align perfectly and you're like, dude, I could crush, I could absolutely crush this right now. I, you know, I think one of my favorite things are biathlons. So, cause I love to go for a paddle and then a, a really hard run, um, afterwards. And, you know, I've, like Jeremy Witted, I love to race with him cause that's kind of his style as well. Light and lightweight and fast and good runner but there's something really special i think about paddling really hard for like 45 minutes or an hour and then just ditching your board and jumping straight on to throwing some running shoes on and running you know like really fast for an hour and if you can get in like 30 minutes into that run and if your stomach is in a good place it's then like your mom my me personally my mind goes in this really good place and that's like there've been some times that I've like looked at Jeremy and I've just been like, I love you, bro, man. This is like my favorite thing is like being here in this moment with you right now. Um, cause we're doing two different things and you know, it's just like, it's kind of special. I, I, di I dig running. I think that's part of it as well. I just, I like to run. <laughs> and you were saying you've done some full length Ironman stuff too, right? One or. I've done two. Um, Kimberly, my, you know, my wife, she had done an Ironman before I had even met her. And then, you know, I knew what they were. And then I was just like, oh, man, that, that'd be so cool. I'd love to do that. And just to see if I could continue to just move my body forward and um, through all the, the miles and whatnot. And so, um, yeah, we did a couple of them. And I'm, I'm done with that stuff. I don't want to spend that much more time on a bike. It wasn't, I mean, like, yeah, sure, it hurt and all that kind of stuff. But the amount of training to get through that 
the, the amount of time you have to spend on a bike, I'm, I'm just done with that. Yeah. But also, and also being on a road, man, like I'm tired of like wondering if I'm going to get clipped by a car. Um, yeah. so Interesting. I'll, I'll take my chances, uh, with bass boats and lightning on the water instead of, uh, <laughs> uh cars ripping by you on the interstate or, or highways. Yeah. And what's that, what's that race you guys do? And you have, it's like the paddle run. It's that the invite race you do. Uh, yeah, that's, um, we, yeah, yeah. The paddle run. It's about five, five and a half mile paddle, six mile run. Super just like low key, man. Like, I think last couple of times we did this, there was like less than 10 people that showed up or something like that. And, um, but it's just, I love it, man. And did COVID did COVID crush it this year? Yeah, this year we I canceled it. You know, I thought it because it, that was like right in the crux of it, like right in the middle of March. And then I was just like, if we do this, let's just. I was almost tempted. I was like, we if we're gonna do this, we should just do this by like texting. Like, hey, <laughs> it's still gonna happen. Be there, right. you know, the ropes and everything like that. But uh, just GPS based, like virtual, like everything's doing. Yeah, like the the race didn't actually exist or something like that. But but we just canceled it and stuff because also like, uh, yeah, it was too many unknowns. But so cool. So how did you and Kim meet? Chattajack, twenty twelve. Who, whose idea to, was it? You yours or hers? To, to host the race, I, I it was my my idea. Um, I you know, put together the race. I reached out to a bunch of my kayaking buddies, whitewater buddies. Cause you know, some of those guys were starting to kind of explore flat water a little bit more. And then I was like, Hey guys, let's paddle the Tennessee river gorge. Um, you know, we've, I, I had paddled that stretch a few times before. And, um, I, I, you know, I'd, I think I'd done a couple of five and six mile races and just gotten completely spanked. And so then I was just like, <laughs> All right, let's do something longer. <laughs> Maybe I'll do better at that. And um, but so anyway, um, I uh, that was kind of the reason for doing that. Um, and it's it's beautiful as well. Yeah, no doubt. Didn't Kim paddle the North Carolina coast in 2012? She did. Um, I, I, maybe she did that in 13 though. Uh, I think she did that with Casey Wallace in 20. Yeah, she did that in 2013. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't remember what uh, what year that was, but I remember uh, communicating with with she and Casey uh, just about different parts of North Carolina because because Mike and I had had already done it. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah, I remember that now. I was trying to trying to help them out a little bit and give them some some information. But I couldn't I couldn't remember the date. Um, but yeah, she's she's a hammer too. She's uh, she's got that endurance bug and absolutely. I remember she meeting her. She is. So you have this strange relationship, just from from my from where I sit. You have this strange relationship to kind of suffering. It's like you just don't seem to be phased by it. And is I don't know if that's just an illusion or is it. Is this something where you kind of embrace it or do you just kind of ignore it? And cause I mean, some of the stuff we've talked about and like, that you got on your, your sort of theoretical bucket list, 
it's just, it makes me kind of wince like, Oh my God. And you're just like, yeah, man, let's go for it. It's a hundred miles. I'm like, what? I think I'm a pretty big pansy, man. Like, uh, when things start to hurt, man, I'm, I, I start like backing off pretty quick, but I, I think what I try to do is on the front end is I try to figure out ways so that things won't hurt. And, um, but yeah, like once the joints, joints start to hurt or chafing or something like that, I started getting, uh, I started getting kind of fussy, you know, like I, I, I'm not like complaining with the group, but I don't know. I get, I get smacked down pretty quick, I think. So mm. I, I think I can deal really well with cold. I can yeah. definitely, I can, cold doesn't, um, like, even like a threshold, like, especially vision, that's the very first thing that I pay attention, like, to, is if, if my eyes start moving slowly, I'm aware of that, and, uh, but I don't worry about it yet, until, like, but if, if it's, like, especially, like, running class five, if I'm trying to, if it's important for me to know where the oval is on a paddle so that I can like really quickly brace. Otherwise, if you don't brace, there's going to be bad consequences that that starts getting a little spooky. Um, and, uh, but in terms of like pain, chafing and joints hurting and stuff like that, then I'm, I can't, I can't hang with that, man. Like people like, man, I don't know, like people that like, you know, they like lose all the skin on their hands and stuff like that. I can't take that pain. Huh. You don't even feel that until after. Yeah, Will, you're notorious for paddling till your fingernails fall off. It's kind of kind of a weird thing. I just had a toenail come off the other day. Um, didn't come off all too naturally, but it, it's just a pain I'm used to. Uh, I cannot stand chafing. Chafing, I yeah. right there with it's it's miserable. I remember during the hundred mile paddle in New York, I got. I, I remember the mile exactly. It was mile 43, and I was chafing so bad. I pulled off to the side of the river, and basically I, I was also kind of losing my mind. But um, I just started taking – I had a lining on the inside of my shorts, and I just started taking a knife to my shorts, like yeah. with them still on. And it was just like I could not get that lining off fast enough. So I'm just like throwing a knife all around my <laughs> all around my mouth trying to get this stupid liner off. And That's dangerous, if, man. And if I hadn't done that, it would have been game over, I think. I was I was pretty close to bleeding. <laughs> it was, well, I was close to ble- bleeding taking it off, too. But, um, yeah, I can't stand chafing. But the, the fingernail thing, you can you can tape them back on uh, to keep going. So And you can, if you just relieve the pressure by pushing pushing on the nail, tape or something it's fine but yeah on that note another big trip you guys did and we don't have to go into too big a detail you guys did like what 700 miles down the septic river in papua new guinea was that the boat based right yeah we didn't i mean that one was like cultural purely cultural um i honestly don't even know how many miles we paddled that one was like uh that trip was probably one of the most revelational experiences ever in terms of meet you know experiencing uh hunter gatherer um tribes um you know but we didn't know going into that how much we were going to get to paddle um 
I mean, we were, we were spending the night in with, in villages where we were like the second white man that they had ever seen. Um, and, uh, and even our guides, like when we, when we put on the river, we had an expectation. We wanted to go as far up that river as possible because we knew as far, once you get past, um, uh, man, it's been a couple of years. I'm trying to, um, there was, a I can't remember the, they were, they were known as the insect tribe. And, uh, they we knew once we got past them things were going to get very um unknown and uh and our guides they took us up there and then we were like we wanted to go further and they they wouldn't and then once again kim just came through kim kind of helped us stand our ground and negotiate and we kind of had a little come into jesus meeting with our guides and they were like all right well if what you want to do is going to happen. We need to get a lot more gasoline. And I mean, that's, you're essentially in a dugout canoe with a ton of barrels of petroleum and an outboard engine and five crocodile clan initiates. And so that's important to have people that are crocodile clan initiates because there's, that's the most densely populated area in the world for different languages. But the one thing, the universal truth up there is the, essentially worshiping crocodiles because there's crocodiles in the river. And so for forever and ever and ever, it's like before there was Christians up there spreading Christianity, the crocodiles of the river were God, the God, you know? And so wow. to this, to this day, the, the men on that river will scar their body to um, have uh, scarifications in the markings of a crocodile. And so we had five crocodile clan initiates. Um, so that way, wherever we went on the river, as far upstream as we could get as far into the unknown or black box, we could pull into a village and we would have five guys that are initiates. And you're basically, you pull into a tribe and you're just like, Hey, who is the, um, who's the oldest male here? And cause that's who we're going to negotiate with. Not, not, I'm not negotiating. My five guides are, and, um, the resources that we have to, um, to negotiate with are, uh, things that are helpful to them, like razor blades or needles or thread or petroleum. Um, if they wanted money, sure, we had money to give them. But some of the times you're you're so far out and that doesn't really equate to them. But we had some really beautiful um, experiences on that trip, things that I will never forget. And some things that are probably there won't be many places on our globe where one could go and like still have that experience. I think one of the most powerful ones was we were in this man's house and his name was Gibson. Um, I don't know what his, that was the name that we were told, you know, but I'm sure he has a, a, a more, um, a, a name that's probably more, uh, that is uh, common to Papua New Guinea, but anyway, Gibson. And he wanted to know, while we were there, what our motives were, you know, were we there for as missionaries or scientists or like looking for resources? And we we're just like, no, man, we, we're just here to like see what's up here. And then after he realized that we were just trying to basically like experience hunter gatherer society, he was like, so, so like you basically want to go like as far away from like Western civilization as possible and he had already like we'd already had conversations with him where he's just like, so tell me describe your home and I was like okay we live on a on a condo on the seventh floor and that never 
he never could actually grasp the idea of a stacked home. Um, and so, but once he actually did realize what we were wanting to do, he was like, I, if you want, I can take you to a village up in the mountains from, from where we are now, we'll go up these mountains and like, they will never, like when they see you, you will be the first white man that these people have ever, ever seen. And then he was like, but there's one resource that we need to take with us that will actually be for, you know, negotiations. And, um, the, the resource, uh, is, I think is one of the coolest things in part of the, I guess, reason for telling this story, uh, the resource is salt. Really? Pretty interesting, right? Yeah. And so it just, and maybe I would, maybe that's for preserving food. Maybe it's just because they, it, um, and I wasn't a part of the conversation, like why salt? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, that was, that was what Papua New Guinea was all about. Uh, was, wow. you know, they also, they stand up paddle. They have, um, they've been stand up paddle boarding there for probably 30,000 years. Oh, well, stand up, they're in dugouts and, um, I, uh, that was really cool to be in a village and bust out some inflatable sups and then put together a carbon paddle, a three piece carbon breakdown paddle. And the tribes are just like, Oh my goodness. And then you hand them your paddle and they hand you their paddle and their paddle is like, like amazing, you know, for so many different reasons. Um, and uh then they're paddling sups and you're in their dugout canoes and we were doing races and stuff and it was just like wow um people are you know you're giving gifts uh i I, in in my bedroom to this day i have a shadow box of uh some of the gifts that were um given to us it's like um one of the only things hanging in my bedroom and like one of the one of the days we were like leaving a village and uh one of the elders bones in his nose, bones in his ears came out and was just like, could tell like something was not, something wasn't cool. And it was like, okay, what, what, what are we talking? What, what needs to happen here? And he just had a gift that he wanted to give us. And, um, he had a, a stool that he had carved that he wanted to give us to take home. No and, uh, way. So we still have that stool to this day. So that was, that was Papua New Guinea. You know, the, um, it was all about how far the Sepik river is the, it's the longest river in the country. And, um, you know, on a separate note, that river goes all the way to the border of Western Papua, which is controlled by Indonesia, which is, um, there's a lot of crazy, crazy stuff going on in that country. Um, some people would even call it genocide because you've got, uh, a part of that country that's controlled by Indonesia, which basically is going to kind of kneel down to the Western world's uh, want and need for resources. And so companies can come in there and like basically look for whatever resources may be in the ground. And so you've got villages that are there in the same way that you have like villages in Eastern like Papua New Guinea. Um, But there's a, there's a lot of carnage taking place in that country. And so the further that we went up the Sepik river, the closer we got to that border. And we were actually, man, we were, we were going to come within like, 
maybe 10 miles of the border. Uh, once we had finally finished all of our negotiations, like with our, our five guides and cause they were just like, they're like, originally we had four guides and they were like, yeah, dude, you're wanting to go to someplace where we have never been. And that's like crazy up there. And, but they found another guide who joined us and he had taken like supplies up there to people that are like mining for diamonds and gold and stuff like that. And while we were going up there, um, we were getting, I, I would say we were probably within 40 or 50 miles of the border. And I was just like, Holy cow, dude, this is freaking crazy where we are going. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but then, and our, our engine seized and, uh, the, the guy, our guides, you know, they're talking about like, I think I saw a man on the side of the river. He made, um, he made black magic in his hand and he blew it. I saw him blow that onto us and he was probably aiming for the, the captain because, you know, we're bringing white man up the river and that may not be, that may not be okay. And, but when things like that happen in, in Papua New Guinea, you just, you go with it and you don't question it because like, it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? And it's just like, you don't like say like, Oh, that doesn't make any sense from a logical standpoint or anything like that. Maybe the engine just didn't have oil or something like that. It's like, it, whatever they say, that's factual. And you, you it's real it. there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, so that's, we only got, we ended up going further up that river than we had originally anticipated. But then once we got in there, we were like, wow, man, we we're going to make it all the way to the border and, border of western papa and actually when we got there uh when our boat seized up there was some locals these kind of youngish kids that came up and they were like they had a boat and they're like what are you guys doing here what are you you know they couldn't communicate with us but they could communicate with our guides and one of our guides came over there and they're like if you guys still want to go to your border these guys are willing to take you up there and you know this was the, what they had negotiated um i think i I don't remember if it was gasoline that they wanted or if they wanted money, but, and I'm, I'm trying to remember there was some sort of nonverbal cue that took place from one of our guides that it was just like, no, we're, we're stopping right here. Like, I think we, I think maybe we asked Alfred, one of our, one of our guides, we, we, we trusted him more than anybody. I think maybe we asked to speak him to him privately. And we just said, do you trust these guys? And he was just like, no. And so I was like, all right, it, this, this expedition ends right here. Wow. And we're going to sit here with our five guides who are, I mean, if we, if, if things got real crazy, these guys would go to bat for us. And, but we're not going to divide up our five. Cause then like we would have had to divide up our guides um, one or two to go with us. And then some of them would have to stay back where there's, you know, he's got an outboard engine that needs work and, um, additional petroleum and all that kind of stuff. And so that was the end of that. So we, we just chilled there on the side of the Seabic river in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, um, there was a, a little village, there was a, a man who was there with his wife and his kids and he had a little village that he would go to on the river at that point of the year where he would fish and he would, they kind of come over and check on us every once in a while. And I had my iPhone. So I would like play music, like, um, I'd play jazz for them and stuff. And it was really cool, man. Cause like, um, you know, I, I, I played like some Oscar Peterson or something like that. And, uh, you know, the, our guides are like looking and they're kind of smiling and like Oscar Peterson is like this, he's a phenomenal jazz pianist. I mean, just oh, like yeah. completely burn the keys. 
and uh, our guides, you know, he, he like kind of looked at it, listened to it and looked at me and smiled. And then he pointed at my phone and he said, black man pointing at my phone. And he was asking me, is that a black man playing the piano? And mm -hmm. uh, I said, yes, sir, you are right. It is. And he's just smiled really big. It was like, he was proud, you know, cause yeah. he was, he was a black man himself and he was just proud to know that that was another, you know, black yeah. man that was, and you know, on that subject from like a, a race standpoint, it was kind of a really special experience to be there because everybody referred to us as white man. And they, they actually, you know, would refer to one another. They would call like if somebody was overweight and they were black, they'd say, Oh, the I'm talking about him, the fat white man or the fat black man. And it was, nobody ever questioned whether anything was like insulting because of, color of your skin it just right. it's a fact it's a description thing yeah yeah like in one of the villages that we were in a day there was a puppy that showed up while we were there and the name of the puppy we asked we just happened to ask oh what's your puppy's name and they said wampan and we we're like oh cool that's a cool name you know how did it come about and they said well because this little girl right here she can't pronounce she she keeps calling you white man but she can't say white man she's saying Wampan, which is as close as she can get to saying white man. And so we just decided to give the dog the name Wampan. So <laughs> that's so cool. So yeah, that's that was Papua New Guinea. Wow. That was a, I have a similar story. I, I went to Tonga years and years ago and, and they called me Palangi. And apparently white people are called Palangi and Palangi in Tongan means the sail because we came from the sail craft. So they would okay. refer to us as, you know, the people that came from the boats. Yeah. And, uh, and they became, they started saying too low as a, as a means of saying greeting, because when the white guys came to all the Tongan uh, huts, the doors were always low and they'd bang their heads and they'd say, it's too low, it's too low. So they would, yeah. they were like the first, the first impression of the white guy, they thought it was a greeting, but he was saying that the door was too low. It's pretty fascinating, <laughs> man. Yeah. That's so cool, dude. You've been, and I think you're right, you know, given the exponential growth of and spread of technology and with cameras and everything else and, you guys probably saw something that no one will ever see again until there's a great extinction and everything starts over. Maybe not yeah. for another couple of years, but it's, that's just insane, man. It's just, I mean, if you study like where in the world we have like the most uh, hot spots for a multitude of languages, um, Papua New Guinea, there's no place that even comes close to, I mean, I think they have like, there's like, 300 different languages right on the Sepik river. And so, you know, like even our guide, he would say, you see that campfire there, you see that campfire right there. Those people can't communicate with one another. Um, mm. there was even like one point in time we were on an Island and, um, we, this young boy was walking us around and he was like, see this stick here in the grounds. And I was, we were just like, yeah. And he's, he's like, if that stick is removed, that means that we're at war with this other Island that you can see from here. Um, but so I guess that doesn't have anything to do with language, but the first example does, and it just shows you like the close proximity of mm -hmm. the villages stuff. And, uh, but, um, but yeah, Papua New Guinea, it's, it's changing. It's, it's changing very quickly there. Everybody is adapting, um, like the pigeon language or even English or other European languages. And they're losing a lot of their own 
languages and it's, it's the same way that like in like a lot of the native american languages are almost kind of becoming more historic where mm. you know unless unless you're a historian or something like that who's like working to keep that but the, the younger generation they're they may not may it may not be a priority for them to learn to speak cherokee you know because they're just mm -hmm. like i'm i'm gonna like focus on other things and so yeah it kind of slips away do you have any uh, any upcoming adventures now that now that you're a, a new father or i guess he's almost a year old now yeah um, yeah yeah harrison will be a year old in two weeks um, um, uh, um so that do you have any uh do you have any big big adventure plans with uh with the little guy around too right now we're just kind of every day watching him do discover new things last week he just learned to walk and so he's just kind of up and off to the races so that's like amazing to see you know like he, at first he was just taking five steps and 10 steps 15 steps then he's like popping up without hanging on to anything and so it's like really cool to see that last night he was in the bathtub and for the very first time he was staring at the water and i could see that he was thinking about it because he was like putting his face like right there to the water and then he finally just did it. He put his face like into the water and I was like, whoa. And he popped it back up and his, eye, you know, he, he was just like, uh, it was, you know, it was really cool. So every day is like new like that. Um, as a parent, you know, you're just kind of watching and seeing him explore and discover new things. Um, but there's a lot of, so you know, that's the yeah, it's, it's, I think that's kind of what, um, uh, is on the list. Um, any, so as far as Chad and Jack this year, obviously there's a couple of restrictions uh, with our friend COVID happening. Um, any, anything completely different this year and past years, or is the format still the same? Just uh, you know, everybody social distancing and uh, you know, safe measures and things like that. Yeah, um, probably the biggest difference will be that there won't be a big, massive um, tent. There, there will be, like, at, when people come and they're checking into the race, there, there will be, like, lots of smaller tents spread out. Um, then we are going to – we're going to set up a um, basically a outdoor rock stage that will be down there right at the river, and that's where the award ceremony will be. Um, so if the weather cooperates – it'll be like probably the best strategy act ever. Cause we'll have, um, this, um, the stage is rad. We've already picked it out. Um, it's got like a video backdrop. And so, you know, we'd have like a podium and a rock band, um, playing, you know, music for the award ceremony. And then we're using all those concrete stairs that like form Ross's landing. That's like essentially the bleachers and people can easily, space out right there that you know it's like the perfect venue for social distancing um and so as we get a little closer to the event um we will uh start sharing more information about all that stuff and um you know we're we're watching following closely events like iron man to see how they are um going to um embrace social distancing and um 
I, we've talked, I've talked to a lot of other race directors as well that just kind of say like, Hey, here's kind of like my, here's the action, the, the COVID-19 safety action plan that we have in place. Like, what do you, what are your thoughts on this? And, um, but I've talked to race directors of, uh, running events, um, softball tournaments, volleyball tournaments, uh, triathlons, just to kind of see like, what are people's thoughts on stuff? What are they, how are they going to do this and that? And, um, so I feel, and yeah, we've reached out to about a hundred volunteers, China Jack volunteers in the past. We actually reach out to them for anybody and just say, what are your guys thoughts? Like if we did something like this for our safety plan, because Chattajack can't exist without your help. And so um, if we're just take the emotional side out of this entirely, are you guys on board for helping us try to facilitate an event with these measures in place? And the response was, I would say 98% positive. The other 2% were just people who were like, this sounds awesome. This is a great plan. I just, I personally won't be able to be there because I am taking care of a grandmother or a parent who's 90 years old. And so therefore that, um, Oh yeah. So that, that's that. Um, and also, you know, fortunately for us, October is kind of far enough down the road where I was like, we're really not going to be setting any precedents because we're going to be, there's going to be a lot of other events that are taking place in, uh, July, August, September, where we can just kind of see what the pulse is of things and make sure we're on track. Um, we're starting to accumulate a lot of resources right now so that way we can have a safe environment for athletes as well as volunteers. It was, it was a really smart move by you guys to delay the, the signups for as long as you did just to kind of get a grasp of what was happening because, I mean, every, even still, every, every day is different and everything's changing on a daily basis. So, um, like you said, hopefully as the summer goes on, you can see how other events are run um, make it make adjustments and sure the event is still going to be fantastic as it usually is it's been it's been awesome to watch that grow from, from the beginning I, I, mean, I know i haven't been there every year but um I'm, I'm back sporadically and just to just to see it grow into the race that it has it's, it's just awesome to see so you guys have done an awesome job growing it. yeah what do you think last last question or two what do you think is what what do you think the draw is? Is like is it the community thing? Is it or is it just a whole enchilada? Is it like the you know, it's a unique thing in that it gives people a chance to do an epic distance like a Molokai or Catalina thing on a safe, controlled environment. You know, I don't know. It just seems like people are attracted by the personal challenge, the bucket list item, the I was talking to a fellow competitor today on the phone, Roxanne, who's like sixty-five and She's two years from her buckle, man. She's just pumped up to come back as I am. And uh, I don't know. I would say the the gorge is kind of, is very unique. Um, you know, it's there's not a lot of places where you have a a big river without rapids that cuts through a big massive gorge like that. It's also cool to do a point to point race. Um, you know, so many so many paddle races or loops of some type. Um, mm -hmm. It's also, we're somewhat protected by the weather because we are inside a gorge. So people can travel from all over the country and more than likely it's not going to get canceled because of 
wins, you know. Like, uh, it's just because you guys won't cancel it. Well, you know what I'm saying? Like, if you, yeah. versus if you had like a 30 mile race at an ocean or a big yeah, no, day or something like that, yeah, it, it's yeah. just there's such a big question mark there. Um, and then, I mean, hopefully, the other element is, you know, like. Ironman is such a good example of this. Like when you prepare for an Ironman, when you do all that work and you, you, you have your ticket there, it's such a smoothly run event that, and they kind of roll the red carpet out for you. So you feel like a rock star. And so that's kind of what we do. We spend 12 months, um, building a stage, you know, and like, literally it's just like, wow, this is cool. I mean, it's not cool that COVID has taken place, but it's, it's interesting that this is like forcing us to kind of think outside of the box and essentially create a new experience for people. And like, okay, well, how, what would it be like if we have like this freaking rad big stage with a video backdrop on the back and maybe in like an ACDC cover band and a big podium, like right there in the front. And like, if you win your division, man, like that to me, I don't know of a sub race that's ever had like a podium, and a stage that like is on that level. So I'm just like, okay, man, let's build that. Let's try to make that happen because like people's like adrenaline is going to be through the roof. If they get like on that podium, let's make, let's build that and make that happen. And that will set that as our, as our goal, as well as a million other things like, you know, like, um, making things very, very, um, without going into details, making things very personal, um, and, uh, very powerful, I guess, on a, on a feelings level. So it's just like, wow, this is done with, with a lot of heart or with like a, a lot of, there's, this is very organic. And um, so, you know, just like maybe there's like certain surprises and things like that where people are just like, dang, man, they did it right. Cool. Good, good yeah. stuff. You know? Uh-huh. Yeah. I remember that first shadow Jack and uh, we were doing wards and I, think, I can't remember if it was at the end or right before we started doing awards, you were talking about how you just wanted to keep it organic. And it, I mean, obviously you just, you just said it again, you know, that's just been the theme for the Chattajack is to, to keep everything organic and keep it homegrown. And it's, it's stayed that way. So uh, kudos to you guys for, for following through with that and continuing on. It's just, it's awesome. On the awards topic, the, the railroad spike bottle openers are back this year. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool, I think, man. Uh, I think if, um, if the stars align and the weather is it, it cooperates, which we're due for that to happen. And you guys bumped so, it back to the original week, too. Um, October, I mean, what, this year it's on October 24th. Um, yeah. Back at, when we did it in 2012, we did it at the beginning of October. Um, but and then still, it was it was cold at the start, and then oh uh, uh, yeah, it was 2013. There was there was frost and snow and so yeah. much fog on the river. We couldn't start. Oh uh, yeah, was that that was 2013? <laughs> yeah. And then I came back again. I think was it 2015 or 2016? That was a terrifying moment as a race director when that fog rolled in. Cause I was just like, man, uh, <laughs> I, we, there, you can see nothing here, you know? And like, so now fortunately we're a bigger event. We can, we can get like a river closure and like a ton of 
a whole, whole lot more support boats and stuff. Whereas back then it was just like, ah, oh, man, it was just, you, got, you guys can shut the river down now. Yeah. The, the coast guard gives us a closure in the downtown area. Cause I'm like, you know, I basically tell them like when we have the start line, we basically take up the expanse of the river. And so, um, we get a river closure for downtown for like maybe three hours or something like that. Wow. So there's, unless you're a support boat for the event itself, you're, you're not allowed to be in a motor, in a motor wow. boat out there. Sweet. I will, I would love to get back there again to the Chad Jack. Uh, <laughs> It's always a logistic thing. Eighteen weeks. Yeah, that's that's a long, long uh, haul. I always like, like being there. I always feel like I'm welcome there. Uh, <laughs> you're, the, you're one of the original thirty. <laughs> Man, original thirty crazy paddlers, but um, but like I said, you guys have always done a great job, and so thanks for continuing put it on and, and thanks for uh sharing all your stories with us you've done you've done so much stuff and had so many great adventures we love hearing about that stuff so let's have some yeah. more all right anything else patrick no man just thanks for thanks for taking the time to uh i know you got a lot going on with a job a race and a son and a wife and a guitar and a lot of lot of lot on your plate, man. But thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Glad and, we got to surf last week, man. I know it was great being out there with you and Kim and the waves, man. It was so much fun. We gotta make that shit happen more often. Yeah. But tell Kim we say hello. Yes. We'll do. We'll do for sure. There's a little shake. <laughs> we'll do. Good to see your seatbelt back on. Yeah. <laughs> Buckle up. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and comment. For the visually inclined, you can find us at, on Instagram at wicked.aloha.podcast. Until next time, keep moving forward.